morning renaissance, the morning Memorial Day renaissance. Some of you were here on uh, Mother's Day. In fact, I talked to some folks who were here on Mother's Day, and if you were here, you might remember that we were looking at the book of Esther from the Older Testament, and uh, we're looking at the book of Esther because I think there's a powerful message on Mother's Day that comes out of the book of Esther, and it's about unsung heroes. And if you were here, you might remember that, that an unsung hero, as I defined him or her, is people who are substantial in and of themselves, but they take a backseat for somebody else. You, you can draw your own applications to that. It's the, it's the uh, vice president who makes the president look good. You know what I mean? It's the person who plays second fiddle well, and they somehow do their job, and they, they, they answer their calling, but their calling is really to support somebody else. And you know the application when you come to Mother's Day. I mean, that's what mothers do. That's what they're all about. And dads and uncles and grandpas and grandmas and friends and relatives, anybody can be an unsung hero. I'm not going to ask you personally because I don't want to be disappointed, but I, I hope some of you wrote or contacted those unsung heroes of your life like I asked you to very nicely, didn't, didn't I? And you said, thank you. I'm where I am today in part because you poured into my life and you made the difference in my life. Honestly, you can do that. It's not too late to do that. In fact, there was no time limit on that request. Do that after the service today, if you would. Just contact them and, and let them know. It's kind of funny the reaction you might get, though. When, when I, Ilona heard that I said she was the wind beneath my wings, she said, oh, you mean I bring the storms. <laughs> I, I said, yeah, that's right, that too. That, that too. Now, you can, you can thank your unsung heroes uh, any time along the way. We saw that Mordecai, really the cousin of Esther, who became the queen, but Mordecai uh, was her adopted father, and he was really the unsung hero. And what he did was he gave Esther the chance to bloom, to, to blossom, to live up to her potential, and he made that happen in a number of different ways. Now, you may be looking at your wife and saying, she stays home so that I can conquer the world. Or you may be looking at your husband and say, he stays home so that I can break through the glass ceiling. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. Unsung heroes, people who, who, who take their calling in life so seriously, not to be in the spotlight, but to be the support person. This morning, I want to go a little bit further in Esther, if I can. And I want to talk about the person in the spotlight who is a woman. And her name, as you may know and have guessed, is Esther she was known as Hadassah, but Esther is the name that we know her by, and she is a hero. In fact, I want to look at heroes in general, real heroes, but, but I want to narrow that down and, and do a little bit of more focus on that, because that word heroes comes out funny in our culture with superheroes. I, I want to talk about real heroes, if I can, for this morning. You know as well as I do that there's no such thing as a superhero, right? I mean, I mean what we have... In the heroes that we know, including those who fought in our wars and those who served overseas and those who have given their life in support roles in various different kinds of, of helping people, they're not superheroes. They're just men and women whose knees are knocking, who, who feel like they can't do it, who feel like it's way too big for them, who are intimidated by the circumstances. But in spite of that, they step up. And, and much to their surprise, great things happen. But if they're smart, they know that it's not just 
because of them, it's because of all the people who have built into their lives so that they had the gumption to stand up and to be counted and to do the kind of things that God was calling them to do at that time. Esther was a real hero. And I want to catch you up a little bit on the history, if we can, so that you'll know where we are when we get to chapter 4 of the book of Esther. We are in the middle of the 5th century, and Xerxes is the king of Persia, 5th century B.C., obviously. His people include the Jews, large numbers of Jews, because the Jews were taken from Jerusalem in 586 B.C. uh, to Babylon, and now Persia and the Medo-Persian Empire has has gobbled up Babylon, and now they have the largest empire that uh, had existed in that time. In fact, some say it went all the way to India and on the other side went to Egypt and up into parts of Europe as we know it today. It was a mammoth empire, and Xerxes was the king of that empire, and the Jews were under his, his rule. Chapter 1 tells us that Queen Vashti, who was the queen of, uh, the wife of one of many wives of uh, of Xerxes, but she was the honored one, and so she was the queen, that uh, she disappointed Xerxes. Very uncommon for a wife to disappoint a husband, but that's the way it happens, once in a great while, right? Yeah, yeah well, she did, and she's gone. <laughs> that's, that's just the way it worked in those days. She's, she's out of the picture. She's gone from the picture. We don't know what happened to her, but we do know that she's gone. Chapter 2 told us that uh, Xerxes is now looking for a, a new wife, a new favored uh, woman from all the women that he had a relationship with, and he chooses this woman named uh, Esther. She's a young Jewish woman. She's the cousin of Mordecai, but adopted by him because her parents have died, and he is her unsung hero. Now, she is, uh, she is the queen. Chapter 3, enter Hitler, known in that time as Haman. Haman hated Mordecai because of some past incidents, we suspect. Mordecai refused to bow down when Haman had wormed his way into a place of favor with Xerxes. And so Haman hated Mordecai. And and this is the way it works. He paid Xerxes, or he promised a large amount of money so that he he could declare that the Jews, about a year from now, would be slaughtered. They would be annihilated. You thought that only happened in the 40s of the 20th century. No, this goes back a long time. And in fact, in a repeated manner, it goes back. But this is one of those times when he pays Xerxes, and Xerxes gives him the authority to go and to set up this law that a year from now or thereabouts will be carried out, and all the Jews will be slaughtered. Everybody, including Mordecai, of course, because Haman hated Mordecai, and he hated the Jews with him. To destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews was the law. Now, people know that Mordecai is a Jew. He's made no secrets about that. They don't know that Esther is a Jew. Hold on to that, because that makes a difference as we go forward with the story. Decree goes out in about a year from now, and understand, if you're talking about from Egypt all the way to India, you have many languages and many dialects, and so the decree goes out, and it tells us in all the dialects of the of the country, or of the empire of, of uh, Persia, all of them, it goes out. I mean, you think, this couldn't really be happening, could it? Yes, it could be happening. In fact, you know as well as I do that ISIS could make that kind of a date anytime along the line, and has done so, that we're going to slaughter this group of people. Why? Well, that's because we want to, and we have the power to do so. And Xerxes had the power to do so, to carry this out, 
And so the ruling goes out from Xerxes. Now, that brings us up to chapter 4, and I want to read to you just a few verses from chapter 4 to bring you up to speed in terms of what's happening right here. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. And by all that he had done, he means the decree that went out to kill all the Jews in about a year from now. He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went out only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes, and sackcloth and ashes was the, the visible picture of, of terrible burden, of weeping, of brokenheartedness. And now the Jews, knowing that about a year from now they're going to be slaughtered, are, are, are giving that picture to everybody who would look to them and see what's going on. That's where we are at this point. We're going to follow a little bit along as the way as we go through chapter 4 of the book of Esther's Esther, and, and what, I, what I hope we'll do is we'll begin to see some of the, some of the characteristics of a, of a real hero. I mean a real hero. The kind that I really pray that my, my grandson and granddaughter will aspire to. Not the kind so much that are on the television or, or in the video games. Not so much those kinds of heroes. But a real hero. One of the things I see as I go forward in this passage is that real heroes count the cost. They count the cost. They had better count the cost. Now, now I know, I, I understand, I get it. There are times when you have to run into the burning building and you have to do what you have to do. You jump in the pool to save the guy. You have to do it. You can't sit and wait. You can't say, I'm going to wait and think about this because he's gone and the building is burned down. So I, I understand there are times when you have to run into the building and you have to jump into the pool, but that's the exception. Most of the time, real heroes, I mean the genuine kind of hero, they're the kind who say, wait a minute, i got to plan this. i got to think about this. i got to figure this out. i gotta, I got to know the best way to do this. I've got to pray. i got to pray. Proverbs, book of incredible wisdom, one of the places that just puts it in a, in a single line, says Proverbs 29, 20, you see someone who speaks in haste, there's more hope for a fool than for them. You better count the cost. And she does. Esther counts the cost. Let me show you how she counts the cost. One of the things she has to do as she goes along here is to get caught up with what's going on because she's in this, uh, in this bubble, in, in this bubble in the king's chambers and in the attending chambers. And and, and so she doesn't know what's going on outside there. She doesn't worry herself about that. And they don't want to let her know she has no place in that world, at least the, as far as that rule is concerned. So she has to find out what's going on. And if I go to chapter 4, verse 4, and I read a little bit, you'll, you'll see what's going on here. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. She doesn't know. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation. 
which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he urged him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead for him and for her people. That's what's happening here. She doesn't know, so she sends somebody out to find out. He goes out and finds out. He gets Mordecai to tell him what's going on. Mordecai sends her back and says, you better go. You better go and tell the king. Stop this. It's your people. It's you. You have to stop it. What we find in the scriptures, though, is that there's a problem with that whole picture. The proper problem is, is, is outlined in verse 11 with her response. Verse 11, all the king's officials and the people of the royal province know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that he has put to death. The only exception for this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. And listen to this. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Yeah, she's counting the cost. She says, I know, you want me to go in to see the king. And if I can get to see the king, then I can stop this holocaust from going forward. But I don't have any place with the king. You say, she's the queen. No, she's, no, she's not. Well, she's the queen. But she's not the queen like you think she is. She's simply uh, candy, eye candy for the king. So he can show her off and show how handsome he is and how powerful he is. All the, all the women submit to him, especially this beautiful maiden who's now his queen. She's worried. She's thinking, if I go in there, he'll wipe me out. One of the funny things that uh, strikes me about where I come from, Basking Ridge, we have, we have signs, and they're, they're tongue-in-cheek signs. I know they are, so I'm not putting them down. But they're signs as you come into the town which say, worry-free zone. <laughs> I think to myself, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> well, that's the way the king's court is. Nobody goes into the king's court with bad news. That's why Mordecai didn't go into the king's court. He had access to the king. He was his cupbearer. But he didn't have the right to go in and spread the bad news. Yeah, Esther's worried about herself. And she's knowing that the price may be steep if she goes in there. She is going into a, a king who is a misogynist and nothing more. She has not been there for 30 days, and she doesn't know what is going to happen if she goes again. I could be killed. I could lose everything that I have. I could be sent back to, to some place where nobody will ever see me again. I could lose my chariots. I could lose my servants. I could lose everything that I've, I've worked so hard to get. She's counting the cost. That's what she's doing. And that's what real heroes do. They count the cost. He's telling me I have to go over there and fight against them. I know I may die, but they don't quit. That's the difference. Real heroes count the cost, but they don't quit. They, uh, they want to quit. Don't think for a minute that Esther didn't want to quit. If you think she didn't want to quit, then, then you're just playing with superheroes. Not, I'm not talking about superheroes. I'm talking about real heroes, because real heroes want to quit. They want to say, I, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Look at what I'm going to lose if I do that. Look at what others are going to lose if I do that. They count the cost and they want to quit. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus and nobody told you when you first entered into relationship with the Son of God that it would be hard and difficult, then they cheated you out of a big portion of the message because you need to decide that when Jesus calls me, I'm going to go where he tells me to go. 
If he says stay married, I'm going to stay married. If I, he says stay single, I'm going to stay single. If he says then the, move out, then I'm going to move out. If he says, you know, get this job, then I'm going to get that job. If he says uh, don't quit, then I'm not going to quit. Even though I want to quit, and I do want to quit, because the calling of God is so large. If you don't want to quit, then you've probably not seen the extent of the calling of God. If you don't want to quit sometimes, then you've probably not entered into the very difficult decisions of life where being a Christian in this setting means that I lose. I just lose. I'm going to lose out. If you don't want to quit, then you haven't seen that picture. You need to think about that picture of what Jesus really is looking for of those who follow after him. Real heroes want to quit. And because they want to quit, they need to be prodded. That's what we need. We need somebody there pushing us, sometimes just with the knowledge that this is best for you. You remember what happened with Esther, if you remember the story. Mordecai's message to her was, if you don't do anything, you're going to get it too. <laughs> this is not just us. It's not just the people out in the hinterlands. This is you, Esther. You're going to get it too. In fact, here's the text from chapter 4, verse 14. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's father's family will perish. Is he appealing to her on the basis of self-interest? Yes, he is. Is that wrong? No, that's not. If you've chosen to follow after Jesus, you've probably chosen to follow after Jesus for the primary reason that he's going to meet this need. And this need may be heaven that you're thinking about at the time, or it may be purpose and meaning, like it was for me. Or, or it might be forgiveness, or it might be removal of the shame, uh, of guilt. It might be all those things. That's self-interest, isn't it? If you follow Jesus because it makes the most sense, yeah, it makes the most sense because it's going to benefit you. Is that wrong? No, that's not wrong. No, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to appeal to self-interest. God does that. I was reminded of that the other day when I was reading, I guess it's about a month ago, but I see it on my, my feed all the time. Time Magazine had a cover story about men in their early years in particular interacting with pornography. And what they're finding now is that those same men have ED because of that. Now, ED does not mean education. You know what ED means, right? I don't, yeah. You think I'm not going to tell my grandson about that? I sure am. Is that self-interest for him? Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. Self-interest is not something that's wrong. God uses it all the time. But what we have to do is we have to make sure that self-interest is paired in fact, comes under as much as we possibly can with this bigger picture of what God does because self-interest can become my only interest and that's harmful. We see that today in a self-interested generation and we're feeding it all the time. We don't want that. What we want is this self-interest to feed into this larger picture that this is God's picture and this is, this is for God's glory. And when we get that, then self-interest is in a good place about it. Self-interest is okay. In fact, Mordecai says, you're the queen. Chapter 4, the second part of verse 14, he says, and who knows 
but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, see, Esther, God has a picture that he's painting out, and you're part of that picture, and you've come to this place so that you can take care of this problem with Haman and save your people from destruction. You say, I worked hard for what I did. I know that. I get that. You say, I went to the right schools. I say, yeah, I know, I know. I studied. Yeah, you studied. Yeah. I knocked on the doors. Yeah, I knocked on the doors. Yeah, I got that, got that. So it's all because of you that you succeeded? No, no, no. Who decided what family you would be born into or what family would adopt you? Not you. Who decided what kind of, what kind of DNA you would receive and what kind of mental capacity and what kind of uh, interrelational abilities that you would have? Not you. No. Who put those unsung heroes in your life? Not you. No. No. See, God put all that together, and he's called you to the place where you can make a difference in the same way that he called Esther to a place where she can make a difference. In fact, the message of the Mordecai to us is, and this is the way I put it, God has placed you where he's placed you to make the difference he's designed you to make. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah. That corporation? Yeah, that's why you're there. Sure. That family? That's why you're there. That, 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 that friendship in that, that neighborhood? That's why you're there. This church? That's why you're there. God's designed you. God's designed me. I, I love being elderly because I can look back and say, yeah, look at that and that and that and that that God worked out so that I could be here today, right now. And I wouldn't be here otherwise, except that he designed it. He's allowed me to be here. Real heroes, they count the cost, but boy, they don't quit. They just refuse to quit. The final thing I think I see in this passage, in this, this episode in Esther, is that they get help. Real heroes. This is kind of counterintuitive. We think of real heroes. Oh, they, they just do it alone. They're, they're very special. They're not, I'm not like them. I, no, I, I need help. Well, they get help, too. They get help. That's what real heroes do. They get help. One of the places that they get help, if they're aware and they're thinking clearly, is they get help from God. And in fact, that's what happens here. Down in verse 15, Esther replied to Mordecai, sent a message to him. She said, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, that's the capital where they're living, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day, three days, night and day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's a hero. And what she's doing is she's going to God, and she's pleading with God. In fact, at one point, I was, I was thinking she's asking God. No, she's not asking God. She's pleading with God. This is, this is more than help, and help is an inadequate word, but it's the one I thought of at the moment. What we have here is a woman who is who is desperate for God to intervene. And if God doesn't intervene, then she and her people are decimated. So what we have here is a woman who is pleading with God. And the reason why I know it's pleading with God is because of what she does as an external manifestation of what's going on on the inside. When you look at the New Testament or the Old Testament, 
this idea of fasting, that was, that was to get me focused on what God wants in my life and, and to talk to him about the things that are really on my heart. That's so I don't get caught up with a lot of other things. And for me, I skip a meal and I, all I can think about is my belly and how I may, I may die any moment. But no, that's not the biblical idea. The biblical idea is that I, I fast so that I can cry out to God because I'm desperate for him to intervene and do something. And when you see the length of time that she's crying out to God, it is three days and it is three nights and it is no, no food three days or three nights. And this is not, I'm going to skip lunch tomorrow and pray and ask God to do something. No, this is, this is really extreme. This is a desperate woman asking because she is desperate for God to intervene. And if God doesn't intervene, there is no choice. There's no help. She's not going to make it. Her people are not going to make it. They're going to be wiped out, just like she's going to be wiped out. When I thought about that, I had to admit that most of us, myself included, don't want a big calling, because a big calling really reduces us to helplessness. We want a manageable calling, something I can take care of, you know? Something I can build a plan for. And once I build a plan for her, I can say, oh, God, bless this plan. <laughs> Whether it's his plan or not, it's something I've got worked out. No, no, what she's talking about is something much larger than that. She is crying out desperately for God to make a difference and to do something that she can't possibly get done, and that's what the fasting is for. So she cries out to God. But you saw in the passage there that I read that she cries out to people as well. In fact, somebody who is a real hero gets help from God, and a real hero gets help from other people. The Bible doesn't know anything about solo sapiens, about solo Christians. Just no, no, no. It, it doesn't come up for the discussion. It's always in the context, because of its setting in the Eastern world, it's always in the setting of a group of people, and that group of people support each other, and, and they make a difference in each other's life. And if they're not there, then the guy is all alone, the woman's all alone, she can't do it on her own. She has to have help, and she has to have help from other people. That's just the way we're made. So Esther tells Mordecai to call the Jews together for this three days of fasting. Get them together. We'll do it at the same time. We'll be separate from each other, but we'll be supporting each other because we'll be for God's throne together, and we'll link arm in arm to get the job done and to take care of the problem. Real heroes don't do it alone. You say, well, I know some who do. Well, they probably won't be real heroes for very long. And in fact, if you knew the real story behind them being heroes, you'd probably find that there's a group of people who support them as they go along from place to place. The Bible doesn't know anything about the Lone Ranger, except inasmuch as the Lone Ranger had help from Tonto. We forget about Tonto. But he needed Tonto. I need people. You need people. Don't deny it. Don't live in a world of self-denial. Don't try to be the superhero that doesn't need anybody else. That's the way God made us. In fact, I got thinking about some of the pictures in the Bible. I was thinking about Moses. Remember Moses on the hillside? His troops are down in the valley fighting the battle, and he holds his hands up to God in prayer. He needs his troops down in the valley, but he also needs the guys beside him who hold his hands up before God because he gets tired. Moses needs help. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, writes to Timothy and said, please come, help me, I need your help. And he even says, and this is about somebody who deserted him earlier in years, he said, bring Mark with you too, because Mark is helpful to me. <laughs> Paul needed help. Go to a garden named Gethsemane and look at Jesus. Did Jesus go alone? No. 
he took his three closest friends, the ones who supported him all the time, because he needed them. Jesus needed them. So he goes to them three times, and he says, pray. Two times he has to go to them because they're asleep. He says, pray. He wakes them up. Why? Why? Because he needs them. That's the picture. Heroes, real heroes, need people. They need people. You need people to get that company started. You need people to teach that class. You need people to make that marriage work. You need people to be the hero to your kids that you want to be. You can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. What I'm looking for and what the world is looking for are real heroes. Superheroes are fun on the screen, but they don't exist elsewhere. Real heroes. And real heroes count the cost, they don't quit, and they get help. One of the real heroes of our time, my time, maybe not yours, was highlighted in 42. Did you see the film 42? It was Jackie Robinson. Robinson was a Christian when he met a Methodist preacher, and the Methodist preacher began to work with him and deepen his faith and his trust in God. And this Methodist preacher, Aunt Jackie, came to the conclusion that, that I have to deal with justice issues. I can't, I can't let my people be oppressed. I have to deal with justice issues. But there's a way to deal with them, and the way to deal with them is the way Jesus dealt with them. Well, the movie opens with uh, Robinson and Branch Rickey in Rickey's office. And Branch Rickey is trying to tell Jackie about the, about the incredible harshness that's going to lower itself on their heads and going to beat them up and, and going to assail them. I'm trying to get Jackie to be prepared for that. And Ricky wants to be prepared as well because they're both going to get it. What the movie doesn't do is the movie doesn't show that Branch Ricky took out a book and gave it to Jackie. And the book was Giovanni Papini's Life of Christ. And what the movie doesn't show is that the the book, as Ricky gave it to him, was open to the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount about how to treat people that you oppose, who hurt you, who bring injustice upon you. And it was out of that conviction that Jackie was the man that he was, a real hero. A real hero. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what it was. Did he ever wonder if he could do it? Sure, he wondered if he could do it. Did he ever doubt? Of course he doubted. Was there somebody there who could push him forward? Yeah, there was always somebody there in God's timing to push him forward because that's what he needed. That's what you need. I'd like to come to the end of my life and know that I was a real hero for my grandkids. I talk about them all the time. Forgive me. Someday, someday if you beg me, I'll show you their pictures. <laughs> Not without begging, though. <laughs> yeah, I want to be a real hero. I'm going to have my doubts. I'm going to have my trembling. My knees are going to shake. They're going to knock. But I want my grandkids to remember me as a real hero. Not a superhero. Just a real hero. I'll bet. I'll bet. I'll bet you want that too with your kids. With your wife or your husband. With your grandkids. With your friends. I want to be a real hero. Get hold of this picture. Get hold of this picture of Esther. and Deal with it honestly. And then talk to God and say, God, that's the kind of woman I want to be. That's the kind of man I want to be. Would you move me closer to that point as the day proceeds?
as this week goes by, as these days go by. I'll hang out in the front here if I can help in any way. If you want to just say hi, then uh, I'd be glad to talk if you'd like to do that. But let me pray and close the service now, please. Father God, you know, you know the supreme hero is Jesus. He's not a superhero. He's a, he's a real hero. He's the one that we look to. But you've given us a lot of other people as well that we can look to and see these qualities in their lives. And we thank you for that because we've got things to look at, people to look at, and we can, we can reach up to you and say, Lord, make me like that. So, Father, I pray that men and women right now are reaching up to you and saying, Lord, make me like that. That's what I want to be. Maybe it's this Esther. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe Jackie Robinson. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, teach us to reach out to you and to plead with you in the midst of difficulties of life to be the hero on the scene, the real adult in the room. We might honor you in all that we do and all that we say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.